What do you think of as the hallmarks of Malcolm Arnold's music? Light and come hither? A sweet antidote to the prevailing tide, certainly in the last quarter of the 20th century, of mind-bogglingly complex modernism? Well, welcome to his Fifth Symphony of 1961, a work which deals with modernism, but also with irony, conflict, and above all else, with anguish. Malcolm Arnold's Fifth Symphony is a requiem of sorts for dead friends and relatives, which I'll come on to a little later. It's also a densely argued, ironic take on modernism, all the rage in the severe and superior echelons of so-called high art in the early 1960s. Arnold was hugely antagonistic towards modernism, and as a result, most critics were hugely antagonistic towards him. So, he writes a symphony which does many things, not least explore serialism, a founding precept of modernism, where a theme's built almost at random from any of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale, the rule being you can't repeat one note till you've had all the others. Take the lonely oboe which begins this work. Just five notes, D, E-flat, B-flat, F, and E. Not selected at random in this case, it's actually an autobiographical flourish, which Schoenberg nonetheless might have enjoyed. These notes represent the final tonalities of Arnold's first four symphonies, D, E-flat, B-flat, F, respectively, and E, the final tonality of this one. Five notes which are then repeated to make the point. A serial approach then, or at the very least a kind of scientific way of creating a musical theme, which Arnold turns to his advantage at the start of this tense, nervous drama. It's answered by pizzicato strings. That answer then transfers to some of the so-called heavenly instruments, celeste, harp, and glockenspiel, reinforcing Arnold's preoccupation with death in this piece, as we'll explore later. This figure in itself is worth storing away in your memory banks. It has much significance. Four chords coming round and round, but look a little bit more closely and you see, again, a serial-like procedure. Let's just focus on the celesta for a moment and hear the first four chords, just right hand. Now, the same four chords, but just the left hand. So that left hand is actually a mirror image, in musical parlance, a retrograde of the right hand. We'll hear both parts together now. So effectively, the left hand starts where the right hand ends. 
In the years leading up to the creation of this symphony, several close friends of Arnold's had died. The clarinetist Frederick Thurston, the horn player Dennis Brain, the ballet dancer David Paltengi, and the tuba player and all-round musical jester Gerard Hoffnung. This work is Arnold's tribute to those men. And right here we get Hoffnung's initials literally spelt out in music. G, B. I should explain the B is H in music. If you think about it, there isn't an H if you play a scale from A to A. You start A, B, C again, don't you? So you've got G just before the A, and then the B is what would be H. G, B, G, H, Gerard Hoffnung. Now, in 1955, Donald Mitchell identified Arnold's unique recovery of lyrical innocence in a world of atonality. So what follows those bells is a delectable carillon, the second main theme, which calms the severity of the atmosphere, the celesta chasing the harp in canon, the glockenspiel adding sparkle. Again, these so-called heavenly instruments, which suggest memorial, memorial to Arnold's dead friends. Incidentally, the harp and celesta actually start with the notes G-A-B, as this was a tribute to Hoffnung's wife, Annetta, as well. Inversion, or turning a figure upside down, is another hallmark of serialism. Just have a listen to this. Now, the answering phrase to that is literally upside down. A little later on, a new melody appears, drawn from the opening oboe line. Remember that? Now it's in the cellos, eight notes, and then the retrograde of those eight notes, the mirror image. I'll show you that without using the rhythm that Arnold actually writes. We'll just play equal crotchet so that we can see the melody arrives at a point and then performs a mirror image, a kind of backwards version of that same theme. And now we go backwards. Right, we'll now put it in the rhythm that Arnold actually writes. And that melody continues to unfurl. It is a bit like one of Wagner's endless melodies. It keeps on growing fresh possibilities. Now, there's a rhythmic calling card to this movement, often but not only heard in the timpani. It assumes greater and greater importance as it goes on. The tension of this dark and eerie movement ramps up in a brief, clashing, faster passage, 
And then much later, Arnold pays tribute to the great clarinetist Frederick Thurston I mentioned earlier. A comment in music on Thurston's virtuosity and sense of drama. And talking of tributes, how about this surreal, maybe even mildly drunken waltz? David Paltengi, the great dancer and choreographer, was also a notorious drinker. A rigid texture there, almost Gene Brody-like, rapping you on the knuckles for being, I don't know, licentious. Arnold can, of course, have fun here as well. A little bit later on, there's a wistful horn solo, a passing tribute to Dennis Brain, who died four years before this symphony was written. And finally, to Gerard Hoffnung, tuba player and great British eccentric. Like the musician in his cartoon, that famous cartoon, being devoured by the large brass instrument he's about to play, the tuba suddenly conquers or beguiles all. One of Malcolm Arnold's great strengths as a composer is his infallible and wonderful ear for colour. Just at the close of the movement, you get that dominant rhythm we talked about earlier and we heard the timpani play, and over the top of it, just gently picked out three instruments, clarinet, horn and tuba, in themselves a wondrous combination in coloristic sound. Of course, those three instruments are, as I've just demonstrated, the three instruments relating to these three great friends of Arnold who had died. Here they are, intoning their own requiem. And the movement ends in a kind of tortured silence. Death is never far away. And those bells, GB, as I showed you earlier, a memorial to Gerard Hoffnung, yes. But that together with the da-ka-da-ka-dum, da-ka-da-ka-da-da-da rhythm, the eternal ticking of the clock, perhaps, towards each and every one of our ends. A curious end to a movement which is marked tempestuoso, music which is rarely tempestuous, 
except on the inside. Arnold wrote, with particular regard to the second movement of this symphony, that in times of great emotional crisis, we speak in cliches. Well, in the program book at the premiere at Cheltenham Festival in 1961, Arnold wrote self-mockingly of his slow movement. He said, the composer is unable to distinguish between sentiment and sentimentality. Well, perhaps he was feeling aligned to the critics he thought they'd like to use. He was certainly being ironic. In the event, the critics responded true to form. Music of almost unbelievable banality, to quote one source. What's certain is that this is not music to be taken at face value. The opening sensuous string music we're about to play lodges a point which will only come into full focus much, much later, as you'll see. Well, while we play it now, ask yourself, how much did this composer love Mahler, another composer with a death obsession, in so much of his work? A tune, I guarantee you, that lodges in the brain, it will stick in your head. Well, immediately following that, we get a contrasting flute and bassoon theme, the upper strings with the slow pulsating accompaniment, which suggests almost Hollywood languor. But it's the Hollywood of Hitchcock and Herman, not that of Disney. Also, the flute and bassoon theme I mentioned, the flutes are relatively low and throaty, whilst the bassoons are quite high, which gives an odd sense of disembodiment.
One thing that's clear is this symphony is packed chock full with oppositions. You get sensual sweetness versus gritty, cynical defiance. Joy versus pain, you might say, in equally intense proportions. So at the savage heart of this movement, various sections of the orchestra are quite literally at war with each other. And the jarring outburst stops dead. It's a bit like the piece is left desperately groping for a lifeline. And all it finds are jagged bits of flotsam and jetsam, horrible dissonances as one of a pair of instruments in unison grinds away in pitch from the other. The Marlerian string song, which began this movement, comes back at its close, slower now, with strings muted, very different colour. It's not the last time we'll hear it. You sense that Arnold has yet to realise the full ironic potential of it. But there's no doubt that it speaks from the heart to the heart, yet another reason why this music antagonised critics so much. As Arnold himself said, Music is a social act of communication among people.
a gesture of friendship, the strongest there is. Well, to explore a little bit more depth, the communicative power of music, its ability even to be a vehicle for social change, let's step away from the workshop for a moment. One date from this place, you know, it just mm. doesn't add up. I haven't got the sort of uh, uh, magnetic thing that collects the iron filings or the shekels, whatever it is. <laughs> Would you like in Cornwall uh, to, to make some kind of a local festival like Britain has in Suffolk? No, Britain is, uh, the Oldborough Festival is unique. I mean, it's, he's created his society and his festival and it's unique. It's an international thing, but down here, what I would like to see would be an arts centre. Hmm. But there's an awful lot of local music making here. Oh, terrific. The singing and the brass bands and, hmm. and this, which I enjoy. And one, of, by entering into that, one is so much part of a community. Hmm. It seems I to have essential. Yes, it seems to have given you a new lease of life. Yes, why well, I've never been part of a community. I don't think ever in my life until I came out here. Hmm. You see. But don't you think it's very important for composers? They should have a sort of foot in the soil somewhere. Yes, and it should be part of a community and not as in uh, London, for instance, part of a clique, which is not a community. There are cliques that, uh, that ignore the existence of the other clique. This is much too narrow. Mm. I wouldn't want to be mm. part of it. People that, writing anyway. for each other. And, uh... oh, dreadful, yes. Mm. Terrible. Terrible. But uh, as a composer, you're still really very much, uh, although you try and shock us from time to time with loud noises in the orchestra. Uh, you, you, that's a good one. You, you're really a trad writer, aren't you? I mean, all these sonata four movements and six symphonies. Yes, I, well, yes, in the in the sense of uh, using a symphony orchestra to express I ideas. To me, it's the most exciting sound, a symphony orchestra, and a symphony. It's the highest form of music, a symphony. To me, it is. Mm. I know nothing higher mm. or more enjoyable. And you write a very good uh, rumbustious finale. Yeah, well, that's very nice of you, <laughs> Malcolm Arnold speaking to John Amos as part of the BBC's Omnibus programme broadcast in March 1969. Evidently, a sense of community was important to Arnold and he believed above all else that his music should speak to that community and through it to the wider world. Music for him could never exist in a bubble. As he said, I want what I write to be comprehensible, so that I can share my ideas and emotions with other people. 
What's the point of talking at all if nobody understands you? And, as a Times article about Arnold once stated, his music is addressed to the man in the street outside, bourgeois and sophisticated, musically philistine perhaps, but a person of spirit. It would be attractive to imagine Malcolm Arnold as a kind of English Hans Eisler or Kurt Weill, the scions of a between-the-wars Weimar culture, which believed passionately in the power of music and theatre to empower the working class. Eisler in particular used political songs and ballads for choruses, often male, potently expressing through his works the injustice of the capitalist system, but often in music which was highly sophisticated, serial even, a type of composition which was usually only the preserve of an intellectual elite, rigorously selected and organised, and yet it still managed to have the common touch, just as we've seen in Malcolm Arnold's Fifth Symphony. Tradition Eisler in particular, and Weil to some extent, were developing in 1920s Germany was a direct offshoot of agitprop theatre, literally agitation and propaganda. And in works such as the Threepenny Opera, Weil and his collaborator Bertolt Brecht were clear they were taking working-class entertainment and messages into the predominantly bourgeois horn of the theatre. As Brecht has it in the Threepenny Opera, the man who's kicked about must kick back. You had to kill your neighbor to survive. It's selfishness that keeps a man alive. The preachers see a woman in a doorway. Let's save this wretched creature from her shame. Okay, we'll change our lives, we'll do it your way. First you must beat us, then we'll play the game. We end up as a wife or as a chambermaid. And either way we're treated like a slave. It's not surprising that we'd rather we were paid. First you must beat us, then we'll all behave. These moral are hard to follow Just give us something tangible to swallow In the main, Arnold had a simpler ambition. His music should just bring gratification to whoever was listening. You yourself have often said that you want your music to be entertainment, don't you? That's right. I, I've, I want it to be to give entertainment instantly. That's what I want. I have absolutely no interest in the idea that it should ever be played 
after I'm dead or ever. It doesn't interest me in the slightest. I want it to be as present-day enjoyment. Always have done. Your output of concert music is very large, and it mm -hmm. is played a lot. And yet, I should imagine, even with your output, it wouldn't be possible to live on that music alone, would it? Possible to live, but, but not, not very well. As a matter of fact, now I do actually earn a, a living from serious music, but in the past I never did. And of course, I, when you consider I'm 50 next year, it's taken quite a considerable time. And I've got over a hundred so-called concert music. I never know, I never know the word to use for serious <laughs> is wrong, but concert music is probably the best. Mm. I've got over a hundred of those pieces published and I've been doing it for over 30 years. And it's a long time just to be able to earn a living at it after that length of time. But of course, I've always earned a living by, uh, in the past, by doing films. Mm. Well, you've done over, what, over 80 films now, haven't you? Yeah, a tremendous amount. And they're, they're always coming up on uh, television somewhere in the world. So there seems to be... Uh, an income, although it's embarrassing to see film scores that you wrote, say, in 1948, because styles have changed. I don't mean from so-called serious music to pop, necessarily, but styles of what you do dramatically are vastly different now from what you did 20 years ago. Six symphonies. Um, you've written a lot of concertos. Yes. Uh, many of them for friends, I think, but some Mostly of them rather uh, eccentric ones, like uh, a concerto that introduced uh, what, uh, several vacuum cleaners well, and uh, was, an electric that was, polisher. That was also for a friend. That was for Gerard Hoffnung for one of his uh, concerts. Now, he's a great loss to the musical world because he used to blow up sort of pompous narrow-minded criticism sky high but he could do it in a way that uh, that people didn't resent perhaps because he wasn't a professional musician mm. it's great loss we need people like that about what are the other concertos you've written you've written for what flute um yeah. horn yeah two horn concertos um, uh, one for two violins that two was, uh, for menuet yeah. oh everything um uh, I think the best one is a guitar concerto, actually. That's for Julian Bream. Now, this is an example of writing for your, for one of your friends. That's right. Yes, he asked Most, you for this. Uh, that's right. He asked me, for, and I kept him waiting about ten years, but eventually he's got it. I've just written him a solo piece that is about 15 years overdue. <laughs> you do quite a lot of conducting. Uh, I know there are lots of different views of your conducting, but as a conductor, somebody once said that uh, you, you were a magnificent bluff figure on the rostrum. I think they said you were a cross between uh, um, Elijah and Bacchus. Uh, do, you, do you have any affinities with either of those? <laughs> Probably more with Bacchus than Elijah. <laughs> Malcolm Arnold speaking in 1970 as part of Radio 4's Start the Week. Malcolm Arnold's public image was as a hearty extrovert, a man of jollity, perhaps not cut from quite the same cloth as the Weimar firebrands like Eisler I mentioned earlier, and where the increasingly intolerant political climate of National Socialism did for them in the 1930s, the severe and superior musical culture of the 1960s all but did for Arnold. 
Here was a composer who was determined to welcome every kind of music to his party, to use highly sophisticated musical techniques, but never worn on his sleeve. They were secondary to his goal of creating music which might speak to anyone. As a result, he left a legacy on his death in 2006 of a huge body of big-hearted works which are rewarding to perform and chock-full of melodies, of which he seemed to have an inexhaustible supply. But just as Arnold also had many dark sides, so there are always tensions just below the surface in his music. He was fascinated by the human predicament, positive and negative, and perhaps this, meted out in his music, is what chimes with audiences and makes it rewarding and questioning. He certainly had a strong social conscience expressed through music and education. He was a major force in the establishment of the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, for instance. He was also a great supporter of the British Musicians' Union and created his Peterloo Overture especially for the centenary of the TUC in 1968, a piece which remembered the brutal repression of democracy in Manchester in 1819 when the cavalry charged into a crowd of 60 to 70,000 people gathered at a meeting to demand the reform of parliamentary representation. Well, before we return to the workshop I gave on Arnold's Fifth Symphony, we've time for one final archive clip, which highlights exactly how the composer felt about the popularity of his own music and about the reception of the work we're exploring today. So, to the composer of the week. The composer in question once wrote an article about his musical beliefs in which he quoted with approval Oscar Wilde's epigram, The last refuge of complexity is simplicity. Malcolm Arnold, of course, absolutely unmistakable. And of how many living composers can you say that they are A, unmistakable in virtually every bar, and B, able to write memorable tune after memorable tune, and above all, C, that they are actually widely popular? Against each of the programmes of Malcolm Arnold's music in the Radio Times this week, there's a quotation. One of them is from Peter Pirrett. It reads, A composer with no trace of angst, meaning, I suppose, that Malcolm Arnold's music doesn't beat its breast in tragic emotional gestures. 
Anyway, I asked the composer whether he agreed with that description. I think things should be optimistic, chiefly, and lyrical. And um, I like my slow movements to be lyrical, but not breast-beating. Sad, nostalgic, but not breast-beating. You know, Peter Peary is correct there. But on the other hand, one wouldn't call your music light throughout. No, I'm glad about that. I've had that reputation um, put on me by people who haven't really listened to what I'm doing. It's not light. It's, it's far from it. Even a commission from the BBC Light Music Department for these Scottish dances, they're no, by no means light music at all. And you have been attracted quite often to the, uh, the larger scale musical forms. You've written symphonies, quartets, yeah. and so on. I've written eight symphonies and two quartets, and I've lost count of the number of concertos I've written. Do you think it is something to do with the fact that your music is easy on the ear, that people have assumed that it must therefore be easy in other respects? I always try to make it as easy as possible. I try to speak musically in words of one syllable, and I'm disappointed if the message doesn't come over immediately. But I want it to last. I don't just go... In fact, I go against fashion very often and become more corny in a burlesque, satirical way, being deliberately against a too complex, fashionable, contemporary style, which I don't like. Do the ideas arrive simple and direct, or do they have to be pared down? They arrive simple and direct, and I don't write anything until I've been paring them down in my mind. And I write very, very few sketches. I start the work in ink, sit at a desk, and finish it in ink in the full score, always. I use loads of blotting paper because I have to pay, blot one side of the score while I'm writing the next, and I use up as much blotting paper as I do manuscript paper. I can't write any other way. But that might lead to um, a tendency to almost epigrammatic expression, to being over with a thing before you've almost begun. And yet, as you say, you do write symphonies. Yes. You know, the actual trouble, is, strange as it may seem, is that getting it too long, one, if one writes at a desk and doesn't have to go to a piano, you write many more minutes of music and you tend, your music tends to become elongated, quite the opposite. It doesn't become compressed like Webern, who I admire enormously for the clarity of his writing. I've always tried to write with as much clarity as that, but with greater simplicity, harmonically, of course. Can I ask you to play the musicologist? Are there particular works of yours that, in your own mind, heralded a new phase, um, a new, pointed a new direction in your music? Yes, I think my fifth symphony was a time, I've, I've forgotten how long ago it was that I wrote that, but that was a time when I went back to using um, serial techniques as, as well as tonal techniques. I use all techniques. I take what I fancy from all the various techniques of writing in order to make it as simple as possible. It's a ladder that helps me. But in my fifth symphony, that is a, 
uh, a serial work, but if I had said, written a long programme note at that time, when it came out, it would have been damned. It was damned anyway, but it wasn't because of that reason. I don't know what reason it was. <laughs> Arnold's third movement, his scherzo, is a compositional tour de force for all sorts of reasons that I hope I can reveal to you right now. For a start, the opening figure is a bit like a kind of moving target in one of those computer games. Constant metrical displacements. In other words, the bars move around the actual timing of the theme itself. I'll show you what I mean. We're going to play it blind and ask yourself, how many beats are there to the bar? If you counted very carefully there and could count at that sort of speed, you'd find there were seven beats to the bar. Well, no, actually, that's the phrase length. The bars have six beats, actually two beats, each one divided into groups of three. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, one, two. So I'm going to count along with the winds playing this opening inexorable figure that keeps burning away a hole in your brain. I'm going to count the bars and show you exactly how the bar lines shift across this theme as it's constantly playing. Ah, one, two, 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 one. Now that nagging opening gesture derives from the pizzicato chords, you remember, in the opening section of the first movement, which we also heard on Celesta. Do you remember? Now I'm going to ask John Alley, our Celesta player, to reorder the notes from those four chords, and you'll hear how they form exactly the theme the woodwinds just played. As you can hear, rigorous compositional techniques. Like something Schoenberg might do, I suppose. And again, these are curious approaches for a composer who's accused of having too much of the common touch. Perhaps Arnold is shouting at the pack, I can write serial music with the best of them. Well, shortly after, there's a walking bass. The five notes that the oboe intoned at the start of the first movement, just to remind you of those again. They become the basis of this walking bass. I'll just show you those five notes transplanted to cellos and basses. Over the top of that rolling cycle of a walking bass, those five notes, a series of kind of nonchalant little wind motifs are thrown, themselves drawn from the same five notes. The whole effect here is kind of Tom and Jerry. and rhythmic stability is, as you could hear, restored, at least for the time being. When I first read through the score of this movement, this scherzo, there came a point that I'm going to play for you now where I wrote in huge capital letters over the top of the score, what?
kind of grotesque late 1950s end of peer show music. It sounds for all the world a bit like the score that Arnold wrote for St. Trinian's. You may well know or not know that Arnold wrote over 80 film scores, including that for Bridge on the River Kwai, which won him an Oscar back in 1957. Well, look, like Mahler, Arnold had no fear of juxtaposing apparently incompatible material. And incidentally, Hans Keller, a great vanguard of the avant-garde and therefore an unlikely champion of Arnold's, wrote that Arnold's profundity manifests itself in pseudo-shallowness, which is his historical inversion of pseudo-depth. In other words, the so-called cheap tricks that Arnold employs are an artful response to the over-complex music, as he saw it, which was all the rage in 1961. There's no doubt that Arnold is being ironic here. He's deliberately mocking the popular style for which his music, in general, had been criticised. Again, I think you can hear the metrical displacements. In this case, each statement doesn't come exactly when you expect it. They wrong-foot you by being usually after you'd expect them. Arnold does excel at the musical banana skin. And perhaps on another darker level, this music portrays him himself. There's something faintly inebriated about this music. As you may or may not know, Arnold had all his life battles with alcohol, coupled with some serious mental health problems. There was, at one point, an attempted suicide and a time when drink almost killed him. Well, the scherzo culminates in a display of biting dissonance and fierce aggression, reminding us that overall the mood is grim and desperate. There has been laughter, perhaps in the face of death, but here comes savagery, the world is cruel. A ringing clarion call starts the finale, and note in particular, will you, the rhythm, da, 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 that becomes a dominant force throughout. At exactly the point we stopped, we get an extraordinary martial theme, a curious coupling, again, in orchestrational terms, between a pair of piccolos and the celesta. This is very much the world of fife and drum, a brazen tattoo. There is, in fact, a further memorial here to Arnold's eldest brother, Aubrey, who'd gone to war, returning in triumphant style, a lieutenant colonel, but then subsequently committed suicide. This skirling music keeps returning, more and more loaded every time. It mourns Aubrey, but again I think it mourns Arnold himself. It gets more bitter and more savage. His sense of falling short in the eyes of the world. 
And there's an extraordinarily dark and bitter quote that I want to read to you now um, in response to a journalist who asked if Arnold felt bitter about the critics. And possibly after Arnold, I think, had had a few ales. He said, only as bitter as the man who wants to stand up and walk down the street and doesn't want people shouting offensive, patronizing remarks after him. The critics have to live, but for Christ's sake, why don't they let me live too? Well, on this second outing of that tattoo music, it's undermined, as you heard, by contradictory and dissonant harmonies, and in particular, this counter-theme. That little restless figure later provides the basis for an ungainly little cannon, music which sounds uncomfortable, and is certainly uncomfortable to play. And remember that Malcolm Arnold was an amazing trumpet player. He was principal trumpet with the London Philharmonic Orchestra at the very early part of his career. He knew how to write well for an orchestra, and he's deliberately writing something naughty here. <laughs> Then we are quite literally assaulted by the true voice of doom. Three tremendous chords in the strings, the bassoons, and the horns. Again, these three are drawn from the pizzicato chords early in the first movement, but simply in reverse. Let me just remind you of those. As the music approaches climax point, the lonely oboe theme which started the symphony, let's hear that one last time. Is thundered out in unison strings. You can hear something apocalyptic is approaching. And what it is, is a searing tutta forza final outing for the big slow movement Marlerian theme. This, as you can imagine, caused the critics back in Cheltenham in 1961 to spit blood, to reprise in their eyes this mawkish, kitsch, desperately sentimental theme was nothing short of an outrage. But to my mind, they completely missed the point. Surely this reprise is at the least a huge cry of pain at the loss of people he held dear, but also at the shoddy way he was treated or misunderstood by the musical establishment. And at the same time, it could be the most gloriously ironic statement. But is this how the symphony should close? No. 
That would leave a cheap sentimental ring. I'll play you the last part of this and just listen to how Arnold willfully, brutally denies this Marlerian music a proper cadence with an ugly key change wrenching it up from D major to E minor with a vast organ-like chord with all its gothic doom-laden connotations. You hear then a final Gerard Hoffnung chime, the G and the B, then silence. Magnificence, you might say, cut off in its prime. Malcolm Arnold's Fifth Symphony actually enjoyed a five-minute ovation at its premiere in Cheltenham Town Hall in 1961. But, as the Gloucestershire Echo reported, even whilst the thunderous applause reverberated, other sounds could be heard. The sharpening of critical knives and the bearing of critical talons. And, perhaps amazingly, some of that cynicism still exists today. I suppose it could be said of Arnold, as it was of Mahler, whom Arnold adored, his time is yet to come. Any questions? How many symphonies did Arnold write? Which are the most uh, frequently performed? And is it the case that there is in the intellectual fraternity a, a, a preoccupation and an obsession with, as it were, inaccessible music? The easy answer to the first part of that is Arnold wrote nine symphonies. I'm not quite sure which are more performed the, than the others. Certainly in my mind, though, the fifth symphony that we're exploring today and the seventh are the two great masterpieces. But there are extraordinary depths and wonders and riches to be discovered were anyone to take more than just a casual look at any one of the nine symphonies. They are a great testament to Arnold as an artist, just as his string quartets are and they're so worthy of exploration, as I hope we've shown today. There is still great cynicism about Arnold's work, which pervades. Of course, the atmosphere of the times in which we live now are somewhat different to those kind of rather severe 1960s belief systems, where the Darmstadt world and all that that had to offer, wonderful though so much of it is, was the prevailing wind, and somehow anyone begging to differ from that. Anyone who stepped outside the current trend was to be viewed with nothing short of horror. Of course, we do live, in a way, in a more enlightened time now. Certainly, there is a sense that more musics are now acceptable. People have wider ears, or at least greater tolerance. 
But nonetheless, it seems people still have this kind of sense of falling short with Arnold, that somehow they've got this overview of him as writing music which was too easy. And again, as I hope we've shown today, all it needs is just a little bit of gouging beneath the surface, and you find here is a first-class composer. Another question. Uh, Malcolm Arnold's work uh, seems on the surface to be very similar to that of William Walton. Why do you think uh, Walton was received as much better than Arnold has been? That's a very good question, and the fact is that Arnold and Walton were very close friends, perhaps partly because they felt like birds of a feather. Both were creating music which had a kind of luxuriousness about it, which was definitely flying in the face of the trends of the time. The fact is absolutely that Walton had a more outwardly stellar career than Arnold. He was recognised, his music was taken more seriously, and it's certainly taken with the utmost seriousness now. I don't know why the same accolade hasn't been afforded to Arnold. As I said earlier, I'm sure his time is yet to come. Well, I have the BBC Concert Orchestra with me, led today by Paul Willey, and together we'll now perform for you Arnold's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> 